everyone, and welcome back to The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with a research and a policy bent. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Haley. We are a researcher and a policy analyst translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in tech and business. Each month, we start with covering the latest in cutting-edge research in popular media and in the policy sphere, and then we pop to our guest portion where you get to hear straight from an expert about the incredible work that they're doing in developmental science. Caitlin, take it away for our updates. So the big news on pretty much everyone's minds, kind of the big elephant in the room the past few months, has been the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And with that, a number of related and cascading updates on maternal and infant health. So we're really lucky today to be joined by our guest, Bridget Holmes. She's a board-certified nurse midwife, and she's going to give us the inside scoop from a health professional about how these changes are shaping women's and infants' health on the ground. So in June and July, as you know, in the U.S., we are facing not only a tampon shortage, but also a huge public health crisis of infant formula shortages. Yeah, it's pretty tragic. And for folks who don't know, families across the country in recent months have been really, really struggling with a significant drop in the availability of infant formula. Some having to drive for hours from store to store around their town or neighboring towns or rely on friends and family in other states to send them formula just to find enough of it to sustain their infants or other family members who might need formula for dietary reasons. And this is mostly born out of the fact, or at least exacerbated by the fact, that the market of infant formula in the United States is predominated by four major corporations. So there's a lot of market concentration in who's actually producing the infant formula available out there to buy. And then there was an FDA closure of this massive producer owned by one of the biggest players in that market, and that's Abbott. The Biden administration has taken steps to solve the problem and to get more product on shelves, like shipping infant formula from other countries that have similar health standards. But this really points to critical shortcomings in the country's food supply chain, like issues with agency responsiveness, domestic market concentration, like I mentioned, and a pretty weak social safety net that should protect families and make sure that they have steady and reliable access to food and nutrition. So this is also happening around the same time as the overturn of Roe v. Wade with the release of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court decision which means that the constitutionally protected right to abortion that people have had for more than 50 years is now up to individual states to decide, not the federal government. And these attacks against women's health and well-being are exacerbating what was already a really complicated political and social landscape. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, the work that my team and I have done at the Center for American Progress has been really focused lately on fighting for federal investments for childcare, for example, because these really high costs involved in securing care can shape parents, mostly moms of young kids, labor force participation, which has all of these cascading impacts on the economy, on businesses being able to sustain their employment like they need workers and families long term earnings. And this is just one small piece in a much bigger puzzle showing how the United States treats child and family policy, like whether or not we have the support in place to make sure that birthing people can make decisions about their own health care, that families have access to food, and the extent to which people view public health policies as related to kids at all. Yeah, absolutely. And on the topic of infant formula and food security specifically, so the American Association of Pediatrics, or the AAP, just updated its recommendations on breastfeeding. So previously, the AAP encouraged exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months and continuing up to one year. But now they've changed it to encourage breastfeeding for two years. So this is, you know, one year more than they previously recommended. I'm honestly kind of surprised about this change. Is there new research around why the AAP changed the guidelines? Like, is there some developmental benefit to breastfeeding for up to two years? Yeah, so the AAP released two reports. One is a technical report that has all of their research updates and also a policy report. So I was digging into the technical report earlier today. And basically the rationale for this is that there's more research now. There's a more robust pool of evidence that suggests that there's more benefits actually for moms for women's health. So they cite things like a lower risk of maternal type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and ovarian and breast cancer. And they also add the caveat that this recommendation is also coming from a place of wanting to normalize breastfeeding for parents who choose to do it in the second year of their children's life. Hmm, Interesting. 
And as a quick note on the research methodology of these studies, so it's worth noting that the literature on breastfeeding relies on mostly observational cohort studies. So this just means observing groups of people at the same time, some of whom are breastfeeding and some of whom are not. And this is because, you know, we can't randomly assign people to breastfeed or not. It wouldn't be ethical, it wouldn't be feasible. And so we don't really have that really strong causal evidence. But what we do have is a pretty robust body of literature that suggests that there are a number of positive benefits. They mostly have looked at studies through meta-analyses or systematic reviews which help because they draw data from individual studies and kind of like synthesize them. But it is important to note that while meta-analyses give you a more powerful result, they're not actually correcting any of the limitations of the studies that are included within it. So like, you know, it can sound great, but it doesn't take away some of the inherent limitations of this work and just some of the potential confounds or some of the extra outside factors that could be influencing these results. Yeah, like if you're building a house and some of your parts are a little faulty, you can't really fix the parts if you still exactly. build a house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in the case of the AP's technical report for breastfeeding, I would say their bricks are solid. You know, they're not they're not perfect from a design perspective because it's not possible to, which is true of a lot of studies in like nutrition and health that you know, you obviously can't randomly assign a lot of health conditions, mm -hmm. but it's pretty strong. And I would say that where I would kind of push back or kind of complicate the recommendation is from more of like an equity perspective or from like a public health perspective. Basically, like, how do we implement this? This isn't feasible for a lot of current reasons. So breastfeeding is both a public health issue and an equity issue. And let's just say two years of breastfeeding is a real stretch for many families right now, given a number of things related to climate. So the lack of parent support, there's not enough policies in place that are really supporting this to happen. This is just such a hard issue. I mean, breastfeeding alone is such a hard issue. Who can and who can't? And, you know, what that looks like for different kinds of families from different backgrounds and different makeups. Yeah, for sure. And I think just, you know, inherent in this issue too, it stirs up for a lot of people, a lot of parent shaming or mom shaming for women or, or families who choose not to breastfeed or don't have adequate support to do so. Yeah. And for same-sex parents, grandparent caregivers, foster or adoptive parents, or single parents who might not be able to produce milk, breastfeeding is not an option. So that I think is sort of an initial barrier to consider who's included in these policies and who needs support maybe more than others. Yeah, for sure. The term itself also isn't inclusive to gender diverse families and might be more accurately called chest feeding. Basically, we need to acknowledge the diversity in families who are working hard to feed their infants. We need to reform policies. We need to support parents regardless of their choices. And I just think if we can slowly inch towards a world that has less shame and guilt and judgment for parents who are working really hard to make the right decisions for their families, I think we would be better off. So just to elaborate on some reasons or some policy recommendations or institutional supports that could that could help with implementing this policy, how about breastfeeding rooms, which are not available everywhere? I saw one at the airport the other day and I was like, yes, go O'Hare International Airport. <laughs> but you know, they're not they're not everywhere yet. Paid parental leave, which we talked about in depth in one of our previous episodes. And even just policies that do more to acknowledge women who are breastfeeding, people who are breastfeeding. So I read this article about the Olympics and how there were athletes who had to advocate to be able to bring their infants because they're technically considered foreign spectators. And so they had to they had to argue and be like, no, I'm breastfeeding and my infant is not a foreign spectator. They have to come with me. They go together. So they had to make exceptions to these Olympic rules, just ensure that these women could breastfeed their babies and do the amazing task of being in the Olympics. <laughs> you know, no big deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Casual. You know, universal paid maternity leave, the right for a woman to breastfeed in public, insurance coverage for lactation support and breast pumps, on-site childcare, universal workplace break time with a clean mm -hmm. private location, <laughs> the right to feed expressed milk, and the right to breastfeed in childcare centers and in lactation rooms in schools. And we also need to talk about the fact that the U.S. has the highest rates of maternal mortality in the industrialized countries, and those rates are disproportionately high for Black and Indigenous women. Black women are seven times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than are white women. And with trends like that, there's more and more a turn towards alternative care. So the demand for midwives rose during the early pandemic as partners and other supportive people were banned from being in delivery rooms. And since Haley probably won't say this herself, I want to point out that she just wrote an amazing 
article, an amazing policy brief just on this topic. So Haley, what is the scoop with with equity and, and women's health here? Thanks, Caitlin. Okay, since you asked, I just wrote a recent report with some incredibly smart and fantastic colleagues at CAP all about how federal policies and programs shape the health and well-being of pregnancies and families. So the report ultimately takes this much broader holistic view of the support that families need to underscore the health and well-being of their pregnancies and examines how that support can be most impactful when it comes from thoughtful policy. What I think folks really need to understand is exactly what Dr. Melvin told us in episode two, actually, that every policy is in some way a child and family policy. So making sure that families are economically secure, have secure housing, access to nutritious food and health care, are able to get an education, work in jobs that pay enough to live on, all of those things create sort of a suite of conditions that are fundamental to supporting this and the next generation. And so federal and state local policies, actually, like Women, Infants, and Children, which is a federal food security program and sort of educational program, TANF, or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, Maternal Educational Attainment, the Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act, Paid Family Medical Leave, Family Planning Services, I could go on and on. And yes, doulas and midwives make up a huge patchworked network of support that helps to make sure that kids and families grow and thrive. Essentially, when you invest in these kinds of programs, policies, and support, you get a ton of bang for your buck in benefits to kids, families, and communities over time. I also want to touch briefly on the point that you made earlier, Caitlin, about the U.S. having the highest rates of maternal mortality. That is absolutely true. It is distributed disproportionately among low-income families, among marginalized communities. And we also, as a nation, have comparatively very, very high infant mortality rates. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I learned in working on this report is that those infant mortality rates actually don't spike until kids are about a year. They're pretty stable, yeah, and comparable to other countries that rank higher on their child and family-friendly policies, like among OECD nations or industrialized Mm -hmm. nations. But by a year, kids are in their home environment, maybe with variable access to different kinds of support. Mm. They might be in neighborhoods that are more disruptive, have higher rates of gun violence, or might be closer to a place that poses higher climate risk or have lead in the water like Flint, Michigan still has. So there are all of these other kinds of public health considerations that start to play increasingly prominent roles in infants, kids, pregnant people's families' well-being. So that, I think, was like one of the really striking findings for me that, you know, this is not just about the care that families are administered in a hospital. It is everything about where we live, the communities that we're a part of, that shapes how we do in life. Yeah, that's so interesting that it's by the first year, because exactly what you said, that really suggests that all of those like home environment, the neighborhood community, social support, so many things happen in the first year of life. And I love the approach that you take in that brief where you talk about the social determinants of health and like what are the contextual and social factors. You know, it's not just about getting through the birth process or getting, you know, through like the first couple months where you may be on leave, but really how do we create conditions that are sustainable and that last through the first entire year of life if we want to really see a difference with those mortality rates. Yeah. And putting in place policies and programs that invest in those outcomes, securing those social determinants of health and making sure that everyone has equitable access to a promising start in life has pretty immense returns on investment over time. So, I mean, even if you just wanted to take like an economic angle and not just a what's good for families angle, you still benefit. Like it's still a positive picture. Mm -hmm. And doulas and midwives are a really important part of that picture. They're an incredible tool for birthing families, which is why I'm really excited to hear more about the experiences of a licensed nurse midwife. So Caitlin, why don't you go ahead and bring her in? So today we're interviewing Bridget Holmes. She's a board-certified nurse midwife. She's a Master's of Science in Nursing from Vanderbilt University School of Nursing. And in her practice, Bridget is committed to supporting women's health and wellness from prenatal care to birth to postpartum. And she and I met in undergrad at Cornell, where we were both studying human development. Go Big Red. And then outside of work, Bridget enjoys spending time with her extremely adorable son, Benjamin, who we just met over Zoom, her wonderful husband, 
their many pets. I'm so excited to catch up with you today, Bridget, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so as a starting point, let's start with what exactly does a midwife do? Yeah, so midwife as a word literally means with women. And I always start with that because I feel like that really encompasses the philosophy of our care. But I like to kind of broaden it to with people, people with uteruses, just because I like to be a little bit more inclusive. But really, it's that with, it's partnering with the people that we serve to meet them where they are to meet their own health goals. And that's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all sorts of health goals. So for me personally, I'm a nurse midwife. So there's a few different types of midwifery. Nurse midwives are trained as registered nurses. So we go through schooling to become RNs. And then we go through master's programs to get our master's of science in nursing. So I feel like for most people, what that's most akin to and what they can relate it most to is like a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant program. And I was trained alongside nurse practitioners, like family nurse practitioners. So we took a lot of the same courses for general health assessment. And then I specialized in nurse midwifery. Amazing. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people don't always know like the scope of a midwife. So people think pregnancy, labor delivery, postpartum, but We also do well-person care and contraceptive visits, and some midwives do primary care. Um, So there's a lot of different specialization and other parts of our scope that we get to practice that can make you kind of personalize it and do what you enjoy. Yeah, I think something that really amazes me about it is just like the spectrum of care and just like the number of different hats that you all wear and all the skills across so many different stages (laughs) that you need to have. And I know you get asked this question a lot. So what exactly is the difference between a doula and a midwife? Yeah, it's my number one asked question, and it's a really good Mm -hmm. one. I think a lot of people have heard lately about doulas, which is great because doulas are an awesome resource. They're basically experts in labor support. I think most people, when they hear about doulas, it's for supporting people during labor. So coping mechanisms for getting through that intensity of the experience of labor. Um, And they can help partners to know what kind of supports to do for a laboring person. They're just really great in that setting. And then there's also postpartum doulas who help with the adjustments to parenting that come after, like can come into the home and do breastfeeding support or help cook meals for you and just help with that emotional adjustment. So there's specialties within that as well. But the big difference is they're not medical professionals. They're just experts in that life adjustment in that phase. So midwifery where it's different is we order tests, we order imaging, we prescribe medications, we perform assessments and plans and, you know, really fill that medical professional role while also doing a lot of that support for physiologic labor and birth as well. Wow. That is a very involved profession with a broad scope of like different aspects of health and lots of different roles that you fill for, for any given person. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And there's a lot of opportunity for people who want to like really specialize or do more of that broad work. So it's, it's really cool to get to have done both parts. So what is, what's an average day in the life like for you then? I would not say there's ever been an average day in the life. It tends to vary so much. Um, And it just depends what's in the water. We always joke things come in waves and it's super true. It tends to be like if you get a certain week of like everyone's water breaking or you have a certain week where you're in clinic and everyone has a UTI, like things just totally come in waves. There's no uh, average day. But I will say for my last job as a full scope midwife, if I was on call, what that would typically look like would be getting to work, having a big interdisciplinary rounds team meeting. So the registered nurses that were on for the day and the physicians, the residents, the midwife, the people from other departments that provide care. So anesthesiology and social work, pediatrics, we'd all sit down in the morning and everyone would get on the same page about patient care and the safety of all of our patients. And then we would round on all of the midwifery patients on the floor. So where I worked at a large hospital, there was one midwife for all of our patients that would be on the floor at any given time. So that could look really different depending on how many patients you have on the floor. It could be none and it could be eight. So it, it can get 
pretty wild depending on the day. But you would do postpartum rounds, helping people with breastfeeding, helping people with that postpartum adjustment. You'd support your labor patients and your induction patients. If there are people that medically safer to recommend delivery as opposed to waiting for natural labor. Sometimes you have to induce labor. So we would manage getting that going and managing an induction or labor. So again, that can be no patients and that can be several. So that's where it can vary a lot depending on the day. And you definitely can't be squeamish. No. (laughs) There's a lot of, yeah, biology involved. You cannot be squeamish. (laughs) Yeah. So you're working with people at obviously such a transformational time in their lives from prenatal care to birth to postpartum. And I know your work in particular, Bridget, you take a really patient-centered approach. And so you look at physical health, mental, emotional, sexual, spiritual health. Can you tell us more about kind of your philosophy around that? Yeah. So I really feel like it's important to me to take that holistic approach and take all those aspects of a person's life and integrate them to meeting them where they are at. Because I feel like for so long, so much of health was really patriarchal, was really like dictating what you feel like someone else should do to meet your goals that you have made for them for their health. And then we wonder why we're not achieving the outcomes that we want in terms of a lot of these measures is because we're not having people set their own goals and helping them to meet those and meeting people where they're at in the context of their own lives. So I really feel like it's been important to me. I think there's been a shift lately of trying to realize that people are in the driver's seat of their own medical care, and we are there as experts to give them the health information that we have, the best science that we have, but it's ultimately them that are in the driver's seats that can take that information and make decisions with it and you know meet those goals that they've set themselves. And so I really do try to take that whole person approach. And so What that might look like is a person who is pregnant, who smokes cigarettes, who I ideally, in an ideal world with the evidence that I have, I know no cigarettes would be what I would hope for during pregnancy. But someone with multiple jobs, with multiple kids, who's a, a single parent with lots of life stressors to tell them you have to completely change this other aspect of your life is not always the most feasible thing. So if they've cut the amount of cigarettes that they've smoked down by half during their pregnancy so far, what an amazing accomplishment and what a great step they've taken towards their overall health and the health for their baby. And so I really think encouraging people in the steps that they're taking towards the goals that they're making themselves is a much more productive use of everyone's time and energy. Yeah. And just it honors people as experts in their own bodies and their own experience and like only they can know where they are in their journey. So I love that it's making space for all that knowledge. Totally. Yeah, I agree. Did you ever find in a hospital setting when you were working with physicians and nurse practitioners and other folks doing rounds and patients that there was ever any misalignment between this like very holistic philosophy and the goals of the medical team for the patients that were on that ward? I do think at the end of the day, everywhere I've ever worked, everyone on board has always had the best interests of patients and safety in their hearts. And everyone who goes into medicine goes in because we want to help people. I think that's the number one goal is just helping other people live their healthiest lives. But I think that where the midwifery philosophy can differ is that we believe that a lot of the processes that we care for people during our natural processes of life, not necessarily disease processes, not illnesses, and not things that need to be intervened with per se. And so I think that's where sometimes you can run into somewhat of a a philosophical difference. And it's just, sometimes it just takes like grounding back to remembering why we have the tools and interventions that we do, and how we can use them in ways that they can benefit as opposed to just using them for the sake of using them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what would you say ultimately are some of the main benefits of being in the care of a midwife? Yeah. So 
obviously I'm biased, but midwives are awesome. (laughs) Um, I think that just what I was just talking about, that philosophy of labor, delivery, and birth as normal processes of life is this philosophy that we take, and that can make a difference in how you perceive your care. And so under midwifery care, a lot of times you'll have more of those deeper discussions, not just about what your blood pressure is and what your weight is today, but how are you feeling about your pregnancy so far? What are your fears going forward? What are you thinking about as you look ahead to this birth experience and how are you preparing? How's your partner preparing? Who's going to support you postpartum? Just all these deeper discussions and and preparations I, I can speak from experience tend to have with our patients and really get into that nitty gritty of what kind of transformational experience this is going to be. But from the research, we know that having midwifery care has some great outcomes. It's been associated with decreased rates of epidural and spinal anesthesia, which are great tools. But if someone is hoping to avoid those, the use of those tools in their labor, that's one of the uh, potential benefits. Decreased rates of operative vaginal delivery, so vacuums and forceps, assisted vaginal deliveries, and just greater satisfaction with care which we know is huge and I think undervalued because people who are satisfied with care will come back. And I think that prenatal care is a particularly important place where that can make a difference because the people that we see are generally healthy young people who may not be accessing healthcare otherwise besides this prenatal encounter. And so if we establish that trust and build satisfaction within that relationship in this part of their lives, they're more likely to come back to us when something comes up or just for their regular wellness exam, just to say hello and show me a picture of the baby that they delivered. But if it gets them in for a cervical cancer screening and I get to see the cute baby, like it's a win for everyone. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that's one of the huge things that sometimes is undervalued valued is that patient satisfaction and return to care. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, what is the typical like amount of time you get to spend with your patients? Is it like usually a year, two years? Because I know relationship building is a really important part of it. And I'm just curious, like how long it usually goes. Yeah. So it depends on the person and depends on the practice. So for the practices I've been at, it's been full scope care. So I do prenatal care, cover labor and delivery, but also can see people for well person visits to do their pap screenings and order their mammograms when they need them and you know do that annual check-in, contraceptive management, all of that. So I can see people yearly on a yearly basis for as long as they want. And then you also, of course, see them within the pregnancy a lot and postpartum a few times depending on the schedule of your practice. So that's where like the bulk of the relationship is built, but really seeing them annually after that kind of sustains that continuity of care. Yeah, that's amazing just from the, the, I guess the patient or the client's perspective. It's like you get that more holistic experience, you get it more sustained and you get someone who you can actually, you can actually talk to them about your experience and how it just feels to go through that too. So that's amazing. Yeah, totally. I love those visits where it's someone that, I had delivered their baby and then they come back and I get to see how everything has changed because everything does change so often with those little ones. It's just wild how life just shifts. For sure. Yeah. And what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around mother and infant health? I think for starters that it just relates to moms and babies Um, because I think that as you guys touch on a lot in your episodes and in the stuff that you talk about, maternal and infant well like this affects everything it touches communities it feeds back babies grow into kiddos grow into adolescents grow into these young adults out in the world and it all feeds into each other so i think that's something huge that's a misconception i guess and a reason why we should be taking care of moms and taking care of babies to feed back into our communities and then i think i don't know if it's a misconception, but I would say there is this lack of acknowledgement. I think we talk a lot about higher rates of morbidity and mortality in some populations, like LGBTQ populations, black and brown populations, marginalized communities who have different health outcomes. And we don't talk a lot about how our systems are failing these communities and not serving them in ways that allow them to be the healthiest that they can be. And so I think we have a lot, we've made a lot of improvements over the years in 
health and science and technologies, but we still have a long way to go in making sure that everyone is getting equal access to quality health care. And that all feeds into these maternal and infant outcomes as well. Yeah, I mean, something that we talk about in my field a lot is that these are policy choices. Like these are mm-hmm. intentional choices that folks in, who have positional authority are making on behalf of the communities that they represent and that it can institute sometimes very, very beneficial structures that extend resources to communities that really need them and can sometimes be just the most frustrating impediment. <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. And we hear... So many, I mean, recently, just recently with the Roe v. Wade decision, you know, there's been a lot of talk about abortion and, you know, how that relates to maternal and infant outcomes. And I think when you're talking about those policies, we're really failing a lot of people in our community with lack of access to supports for our moms and our babies, like paid family leave, childcare access, yeah. you know, just these things yeah. that could be so helpful. <laughs> I know things that could be so helpful in supporting new parents and new families. And obviously, I feel like that decision has a lot of, it's going to have a lot of health outcomes that we're going to see very soon. But we just, we aren't doing enough to support new parents. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like every single episode, we always come back to like paid parental leave. We need more paid parental leave. Like it just, it's, it connects back to so many different issues and it's such a foundation for support for new families. So yeah, we're going to put that plug in. Yeah, absolutely. It would make a difference in so many areas just to know that you have that protected time to take care of your health, take care of your baby's Mm -hmm. health, get your feet underneath you as a new parent, and then you can come back to a job with a protected role where you can be economically secure and secure in your future career as well. So yeah, been on my mind a lot recently, of course, with all the news. Well, let's pivot a little bit and talk about how movies and television portray childbirth. So I'm thinking of scenes like from the show Friends where Phoebe sort of like screams at everyone for a while and then she's like handed a very obviously not newborn (laughs) baby. And I know last year the movie Pieces of a Woman caused a lot of debate around how midwives are portrayed. And I think there's sort of a dearth of media portraying midwives at all, but I would love to know more about your thoughts about how the media portrays your profession and what kinds of representations you would like to see. Yeah, I don't see a lot of midwife portrayals in the media. The one that always comes to my mind first is from the Mindy Project, which it was an entertaining depiction, I guess, but you know, very inaccurate. <laughs> you know, a couple of brothers who run this not evidence-based practice. And there's a lot of cultural appropriation and problematic stuff that goes on in that show. So it's just like, that's one of the biggest ones that have been in media. And it's like, oh, missed opportunity. But yeah, I think Pieces of a Woman got a lot of press recently. And it got a lot of things right about labor and the physiology pieces and what a laboring person looks like. And it did, for better or for worse, get some of that birth trauma depiction correct. I mean, I think, unfortunately, too many people are having experiences during reproductive health care in general and, and during labor and delivery where they're not feeling seen, not feeling heard, in, at times not feeling like these are consensual exams or, you know, like they have a driver's seat in what's happening with their own bodies. And so I think that depiction though we might not like it, really reflects what a lot of people might experience in that process where they lose a lot of control sometimes. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times in the media, call the midwife, for example, a lot of people like that show. So when I say I'm a midwife, they're like, oh, like call the midwife. (laughs) Really cute show on BBC, but it depicts midwifery in England in the 1950s, I think in the 1960s. And so very much a little bit old fashioned. Yeah, yeah, very much not United States modern midwifery care. I think what I would love to see is twofold. I think a lot of times when midwifery is depicted, it's out of hospital setting. It often is with this kind of air of incompetence of that provider or a lack of safety with that provider. So I would like to see a reflection of the fact that out of hospital births with trained professionals that 
are, you know, certified nurse midwives, certified professional midwives or certified midwives can be super safe, can be super empowering. And these providers are well-trained. They are smart and savvy and evidence-based and all these things that I think are not always depicted in those representations. But I'd also like to see the 94% of midwifery that is hospital-based. So only 6% of births in the United States are in the out-of-hospital settings. So that's home or birth center. 94% are in a hospital with wow. certified nurse midwives like me. And so seeing that depiction and seeing us, you know, as we really, like most of us are practicing would be really cool. Yeah. And something that you mentioned that struck me that I would love to learn more about is you mentioned like, you know, this experience of, or kind of this dynamic between the provider and then the the person, the birthing person. And so it seems to me like there's this power dynamic a lot of times between patient and provider that can really shape a woman's experience during labor and delivery. So how do we really think about how to center respect and dignity throughout the process and kind of, um, like you said, make it feel more like a partnership than like a pathology? Yeah, I think that really listening to a person and asking those questions that I talked about earlier and really listening to the answers is huge. You have to especially in pregnancy care experience in labor and delivery, you have to dive deep into what someone's hopes and fears and past experiences are in order to create the safe and empowering environment that's necessary to facilitate physiologic labor. If someone does not feel safe to labor, their body will not respond in the ways that it needs to to help that labor process along. There's a lot of literature out there about that mind-body connection and the ways that prior traumas can impact how your body does or does not respond to labor and just can stall labor out or can just prevent you from progressing in the way that you'd expect to. I think creating those safe places to really dig into that stuff prenatally is so vital. And just listening to what someone has to say is huge. And I think a lot of people think about midwifery, maybe uh, have a, a misconception that midwives only care for people who are unmedicated, or we really push people to do things completely naturally without any kind of interventions at all. And I like to challenge that and say, at least in my practice, I want to know what it is you envision for yourself. If you're someone who your whole life has been like, I really want to get a great epidural and then laugh my baby out. That sounds like a dream. And I can't wait to support you to get there. If you're someone who's like, I've always just dreamed of being in the water and, and having my baby there and doing that, great. Let's figure out a way to make that happen within the context of where we are. If you're someone who's like, I've never dreamed about having a baby, it sounds kind of terrifying. Let's get into that. What makes you feel so terrified? What have you heard? Um, what have you seen? What kinds of things can we do to make you feel empowered in creating the experience that you want? So I think it's really just meeting someone again where they are and and trying to craft the kind of experience that will make them feel empowered at the end of the day. It's so cool that you get to do that with women. I didn't know it could be about your vision. And I feel like for a lot of people, it feels like it's a medical thing or it's physical and it's not necessarily the mental health component or like your history or past experiences don't get woven into it. So it's very inspiring to hear. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. And also I do want to say, for most people who are low to medium risk, these are the things that we talk about and prioritize. But of course, midwives are also trained to handle complexities as they arise and complications. So it can sound really like lovey-dovey, like all this warm and fuzzies. And it, yeah, it, yeah. I hope that people in general like feel that way at the end of their care. But if things come up that need interventions, if if, you know, complications arise, we are equipped and trained to consult as needed. And, you know, there are things that do come up that people need to process through throughout a pregnancy and delivery experience. So it's not completely all like lovey-dovey, but I think there is a lot of room for us as a culture to talk about birth in a different way. And I think we're moving there, but I think a lot of the broader cultural dialogue around labor and birth and pregnancy is, oh, just you wait and 
it hurts so much and you're never going to sleep again, (laughs) you know, and all these scary things, fear mongering in delivery and fear mongering for after. And I just really like to challenge that with this is going to be really hard, but how can we make you really feel supported and held through it? Yeah. On the, on the topic of birth trauma, I love babies. I love kids. I'm a (laughs) developmentalist, but the idea of the birthing process is very daunting to me personally, especially given that complicated birthing experiences aren't necessarily uncommon. Recent reports suggest that that may actually be the case for one in three women. So to a lot of the points that you've just been making, what kinds of steps do you take to sort of unpack that experience and undress some of that fear mongering a little bit and make it more of an engaging normal, albeit transformative, but perfectly normal experience for birthing people? Yeah, I think like we were talking about before, it's just important to make spaces for people to talk about birth. I think that even the most straightforward and empowering, I don't like to say textbook, there's no textbook birth experience, but say you write a birth plan and it goes, everything goes according to plan, which literally never happens, but say that did happen for you. There's still going to be so much to unpack with that, especially for a first time parent. There's no way to describe the just transformational nature of a birthing experience. And just having gone through it recently myself, you're just so in your own mental space and inside yourself during that experience that afterwards, there's a lot of processing as things start to come back to you in the aftermath. You think, oh yeah, that actually did happen. I did say that thing when I was talking to so-and-so, or I did move there when they told me to do that. And huh, that was weird. And that felt really strange. Like you just have those thoughts float back to you, even when things go totally straightforward. So, and we know, like you said, there are lots and lots of people who have complicated birth experiences who, for a lot of reasons, have traumas that they have to unpack from what happened during their birth, whether it's from their side of things or from baby's side of things, there can be some scary things that happen during labor and delivery. So talking about that and making space for it and reminding people that it's okay to not just feel joy in the aftermath of a birth. I hope people do find joy, but there's room for a lot of things. There's room for grief for what you wanted. There's room for confusion and there's room for exhaustion. (laughs) There's room for everything that you might feel. So just giving that safety and space to really like dive into that and unpack it is huge. Something else that I am really curious about, we talked a lot about supporting families during birth. What about afterwards? So what could we as a society be doing better to support, especially really new parents? Paid family leave. (laughs) 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 So, So what we can do as individuals to support our communities would be checking in. I always talk to people about The first two weeks, it's really new for everyone, this sweet little baby, everyone's super excited. After like two weeks, the excitement kind of fades away and people stop checking in as much. And I don't think it's for lack of wanting to help. I think it's just life gets busy and carries on and people would want to help if they only knew what to do. Check in. Week three, week four, week five, those tend to be where sleep deprivation really like hits you hard, peak fussiness of babies really ramps up between weeks three and six. So if parents were doing really well week one, the last time you checked in, things might have taken a turn in those last few weeks. They might be really struggling. Colic tends to peak around six weeks, and that's when babies are often inconsolably crying in the evenings. It can be really tough for parents to navigate alone. So just frequently checking in, bringing by food, stopping in announced, not announced, stopping in to offer to do some chores around the house, you know, take care of that stuff that's not just going by to hold the baby, but that stuff that might be getting pushed to the side while parents are just trying to keep their heads above water. Um, Laundry, do laundry. Yes, do the laundry, do the dishes. (laughs) Do my laundry. Yeah, Yeah. and often parents aren't going to know what to ask for. You're going to say, what can I do to help? And they're just not going to know the answer everything around them looks like it needs help. So just, you know, picking one of those things, whether it's bringing a meal or one of those other chores and just trying to do it and be present is huge. And then I also always tell people, 
when I was a new mom and when I talked to new moms, one of the most common things that people want to hear and that I wanted to hear was just, you're doing a great job and you're a really good mom and you're the only possible mom for that baby and what a lucky baby to have you. I don't necessarily need advice from everyone and everyone's mother and everyone's grandmother because there's so many opinions and so many right ways to do things. I have a, a really good friend who always says kids just need consistency and love. And I always add safety, but I think it's true. There's so many ways to do things, but if you have those few things, you're the, doing exactly the right thing for you and your baby. And so just reminding that parent friend, like you're doing a really great job and you don't need to respond to this, but I know you're just a great mom and sending those little reminders could be really helpful. I love that. So all of the new parents listening, you are doing a great job. <laughs> Take it from a board certified nurse midwife. Like you're doing great. Exactly. And something else I was curious about too, when you were talking before about being a midwife and then having your own birthing experience, what was that process like for you? You know, because I get asked a lot as like a someone who works with kids, oh, like, are you going to psychoanalyze or know everything about your kids? Is there something about having all that knowledge that you think shaped your experience through birth? Yeah, it was totally trippy. <laughs> In the best way, I was so lucky to have had a really empowering birth experience. I was supported by colleagues and friends in just the most beautiful ways. And I feel really fortunate every day that I had such a, an empowering experience. I think even still, there's so much that you don't know what you don't know. And that if you haven't walked through it, it can be tough to understand until you're going through it. I don't think you have to have had kids to be a midwife, but I do think it has shaped my own practice and made me a better one in a lot of ways. And I think it's really informed, especially my postpartum care and just ideas of how to support new parents. I think from talking to new moms before, I had some idea of what to do, but from living it, it's an entirely new perspective. And yeah, I think no matter what when you're going through becoming a new parent, everything else just goes out the window. So for me, I had all this midwifery background and knowledge, but it was hard to draw on that in the moment of when I was breastfeeding and really struggling to latch my baby. I wasn't thinking about my course on breastfeeding. I was thinking about what, you know, the lactation consultant was telling me and the nurses were telling me and the pediatrician and just wanting to feed my baby. So it can definitely inform things, but you also just, at the end of the day, are still a new parent figuring out your own way. For sure. Yeah. There must be so much just experiential learning that happens when you're like in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Figuring out like, I need to get you to bed. I need to feed you. And kind of that in the moment game time learning that happens. Yeah, totally. And it's such a whole body and mind experience too. I like the language that you use where you're like so inside your own head, so in inwardly focused in your body in the moment while you were giving birth. And I imagine in the immediate aftermath too, just sort of so zeroed in on the situation in front of you that it would be really hard to consider where this is in the context of like academic research on the topic or anything like that. Like that would feel so esoteric in comparison, I think. Totally. And I do think that being a midwife, you know, I had a lot of trust in birth just before my own pregnancy experience. So I think that allowed me to really get inside my own headspace for my own labor and trust in my body and trust in the process. But I think it could also be a roadblock in some ways because there's a lot of other people's journeys that I was a part of that I hold pieces of forever. You know, like there are a lot of things, right. even and especially during my own pregnancy, it was really hard sometimes to separate this is this person and not me. And this is their journey and not mine. And what's right for them is not right for me. So that took a lot of processing and work as well. Mm -hmm. As a final question, we love to ask, what's the best part of being a parent or a baby in 2022? I think the best part of being a parent in 2022 is also the biggest challenge, which is that we are getting this cool opportunity to raise kids who can change the future. And I feel like every generation must say that, but it feels so vitally important right now with everything going on in the world. Like this just feels like a, a junction where things can go a lot of different ways. And I think we're raising kids who can be critical thinkers and empathizers and, you know, who can really 
change the world. I, it sounds so dramatic, but it's true. And I really hope that they do. It feels like a lot of responsibility, but it also feels like everyone that I know who's parenting and on this journey together, it's like, I feel okay about this. Like everyone's doing the best they can with what they've got. And I feel like we can do this if we like stay on these paths. Yeah, what a beautiful kind of wrap up takeaway statement for us. Thank you just so much for coming on. It's been so interesting and enlightening as someone who has not thought a ton about the birth process, just doing the research for this interview and learning about your work has been so informative. Do you have resources that you suggest or favorite ways for people to learn about this topic if they're new to it? I think if you want to know more just about midwifery in general or nurse midwives in general, I should say, the American College of Nurse Midwives is a great resource and there's tons on their website. There's a really great podcast slash uh, website, Evidence-Based Birth, which breaks down a lot of science and myths and different things around prenatal care and labor and delivery. It's run by a labor and delivery nurse gone researcher. So that's really cool. I always direct people there. And then in terms of birth prep, I like to recommend The Birth Partner by Penny Simpkin. So it just kind of dives into what you can do to support a laboring person. And it's a really good resource, I feel like, for people to learn about labor and, and the coping mechanisms to get through it. And then Bridget, what is next for you in this next horizon of your career and motherhood? Like what's coming up for you? Yeah, so I just started a new job in an outpatient-only role, which I'm really excited about. I've loved birth and supporting people during their birthing experiences, but I also really have a passion for clinic care and trauma-informed clinic care and sexual health in the outpatient setting. And so I'm really excited to dive into that and also just spend time with my little guy who's turning one and our family. Wow. Yeah, well, thanks so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been fun to listen to the podcast and fun to be on and chat about things that I love. I've learned a lot yeah. from this conversation. Yeah, super, this is super informative. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. So that's all we have for today. Curious listeners, like this podcast if you liked it, subscribe or follow if you loved it, and we'll see you next month for a chat about open science with Dr. Melissa Kleinstrahl. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>